Florida. I'm Sterling Fox sitting in for Jill Bennett on this Sunday morning. We're in BC where gas prices are typically, typically in Metro Vancouver, we pay about a buck 40 a liter. That's on an annual average. That's what it turns out to be. So all of a sudden, we're able to drive around now, even coming in on the main street down First Avenue off the freeway this morning where gas is at, you know, they'll get you at the highest price they can heading to downtown. It was a buck seven, a buck eight. Many cases around the lower mainland, gas is actually less than a dollar a liter. It's been a long time since we were able to say 99 cent a liter gas is available at the corner store. So that's good for us consumers, and we're kind of rejoicing in that bit of a break we're getting cut. But why are these cuts coming? We know the Canadian dollar has dropped in value, but there's an awful lot more going on, a lot of it having to do with forces way beyond our control and having nothing to do with COVID-19. It has a lot to do with Russia and Saudi Arabia. To sort all of this out and uh, the impact not only favorably at the pumps for you and me, but on the Canadian petro sector, which is being just hammered, we're delighted to welcome Patrick DeHaan to the program this morning. Mr. DeHaan is head of petroleum analysis at GasBuddy.com, the home of the network in Chicago. Patrick DeHaan, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us on a Sunday morning, Patrick. You're head of petroleum analysis in Chicago at GasBuddy.com, keeping an eye on the price of a barrel of oil around the planet and what a ride it has been in just the last seven days. No joke. What a roller coaster we've been on. And not much of the upside, but all of the downside. We've watched oil prices plummet uh, to 18-year lows uh, and that puts uh, even Canadian crude oil at single digits, $9 a barrel for Western Canadian select. Truly an unprecedented week. Let's talk about why this is happening. I mean, because the United States has declared itself, Patrick, to be on a war footing, as in us versus the coronavirus, a probably a very uh, laudable position to take. But simultaneously, there's another war going on, Patrick Dahan, between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Give us some more on what's really going on there and the damage that's being done. I mean, it's great to have cheap gas at the pumps, but let's fill in the but. Yeah, it comes at a steep cost. As you mentioned, uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia back on March 5th had a meeting to discuss what to do about back then oil prices falling to $45 a barrel from 55 That was the beginning of coronavirus in the mid to late February time frame. And so they had a meeting, uh, the OPEC did, they invited Russia on how to stem the decline in the price of oil. And as a result of that meeting, many, myself included, anticipated OPEC along with Russia announcing a cut in oil production. Well, it couldn't have gone worse. Mm. Apparently they left the meeting and both of them said, we're going to increase production at a time that coronavirus is crippling the global economy, causing people to drive less, stay home. And that enters in uh, the reason why oil prices have actually fallen off the face of the earth, falling to their lowest since 2002 last week. So it's a combination of lowering uh, prices, but uh, greatly decreased demand globally as well, simultaneously, right? That's right. It's on two fronts. Not only are we seeing a big reduction in demand globally, not just in the U.S. or Canada, but this is popping up in Europe as well. And of course, Asia kind of beyond it now, but it's causing demand for oil to plummet. Flights are canceled. Hardly anyone's flying anywhere anymore. Yeah. The airlines have parked all of their jets, and us motorists aren't driving as far either. And that has 
led to a big drop in demand at a time that, like I mentioned, supply now through the roof. So that has created uh, a, a very significant situation, and that has allowed oil prices to drop like a rock. I, I noticed uh, in a headline forum, at least the other day, the United States government has authorized whoever it is in charge to uh, maximize, to fill up the strategic military petroleum reserves, I suppose taking advantage of these super low prices. But even once that's full, we have this enormous glut of supply. How does that eventually work its way out, Patrick? That's right. Well, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. It will probably take months. Uh, once the situation with coronavirus is over, it will take months, if not longer, to absorb that additional supply. And like you mentioned, the U.S. announcing it's going to fill its strategic petroleum reserve with 30 million barrels of crude oil. Part of that was seen as a lifeline to oil companies to drum up a little bit of demand at a time that it's been anemic. Uh, but beyond that, as long as we're still faced with this coronavirus situation, demand is going to be very low, and it could take months. It could take the rest of 2020, conceivably, to absorb all the crude oil that's flooding into the market right now. Interesting stuff. Patrick, the Russians and Saudis are both being accused of trying to eliminate the American fracking industry. Is there any truth to that? Well, you have to look at that. I mean, that's certainly a decision. Are, are the Russians, are the Saudis tired of cutting oil production to keep oil prices up, even as, as the U.S. continues to leave the spigot open? Uh, the U.S. is the world's largest oil producer, but it is not state-controlled, unlike the Saudi uh, and Russian oil companies. Uh, and so there's kind of a distinction here, is that those entities are state-controlled. They limit their amount of flow, but U.S., production is made up of dozens of companies sure. and so there's really no holding them back and that's why the the perhaps russians and saudis have been frustrated that they have to cut back as the u.s continues to eat away at their market share interesting now here in canada in the oil patch where you mentioned moments ago the price of a barrel of oil is actually less than the price of a case of beer uh, we're talking serious damage to the local economy particularly of course in alberta um, it, what's the what's the long horizon view for getting from nine dollars a barrel to where they need to be again it's a time figure a timeline, Patrick, very difficult to identify. Yeah, absolutely. It's really uh, being able to guess what is going to happen with coronavirus at the moment it's going to happen, and that is certainly impossible. Sure. Now, the U.S. is making some effort to try and cut oil production domestically, and that would help boost oil prices not only in Canada but globally. In fact, polishing off the Texas Railroad Commission, which last controlled oil production in Texas back in the 70s, they haven't done so in a while, but there's talk that they may institute some sort of production cap to help oil companies stay afloat. And that would certainly help the Canadian economy as well. But, and we've seen in Alberta specifically in the past year where there was an occasion where the provincial government had to step in and impose some temporary production cap. So it, it, it's not without precedent, right? That's right. These are measures that we have seen before in unprecedented times. 
And in cases like these, they are attempts to salvage tens, if not hundreds of thousands of jobs in the oil and gas industry. Well, that's it. And that's, you know, then, then this is now where the economy uh, uh, really is starting to get absolutely battered. I mean, we've seen, for example, uh, watching the Dow and, and the stock markets for the past couple of weeks basically lose everything they'd gained since uh, Donald Trump became president. For That's three plus years of market activity essentially wiped out. How has it affected the oil companies? Are they among the hardest hit? Oh, without a doubt, uh, double whammy, especially in Canada, uh, where the Canadian dollar continues to weaken now yeah, yeah. in the light of all these developments. So it's even worse for Canadian oil producers uh, who are getting less dollars uh, from what they're producing. So it, it, it's certainly a, a, a very dramatic turnaround from even 60, even 30 days ago. Nobody would have ma- imagined this could happen. Uh, and many oil companies surprised and, and, and very quickly Some of the major oil companies in the U.S. and Canada cutting back immediately on capital expenditures, doing anything to maintain some sort of uh, pile of cash. Interesting stuff. Great to have you with us this morning, Patrick. And before I let you go, I'd just like to talk a little bit uh, briefly about timelines here. And, you know, again, it's it's tough to pin this stuff down. But in terms of Saudi Arabia and Russia, those who are creating this economic uh, chaos right now, how long can they hold out? Is it indefinite? I think in the case of the Saudis, more so than the Russians, they really can kind of do whatever they want almost indefinitely. Is that your reading, too? Well, you know, their budget is suffering immensely already. They they have shown in the past times when they have done this kind of measure back in 2014 that they can weather the storm for a matter of months, but very quickly it will catch up to them since oil is their number one contributor to GDP. So I think very shortly in the next week, maybe two or three, I think cooler heads will prevail between these super uh, these oil superpowers and you will start to see some agreement on a production cut. Well, I hope that's a forecast we can actually rely on, Pat. It's uh, great to speak to you this morning, and we'll keep our fingers crossed that uh, not too long from now, your, your forecast is going to turn out okay. Appreciate it. We'll talk again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We mentioned this earlier in the program, and we're at that point where we get to dive into the story. Hot yoga was in the news this week for all the wrong reasons. Uh, here to talk about it uh, and the uh, the uh, eventual upshot of all this story, which has resulted in a ban on uh, personal care businesses, spas, all of those sorts of things. Here to comment is the germ guy, Jason Tetro, host of the award-winning Super Awesome Science Show, joining us on the line from Edmonton this morning. Hi, Jason. Hello there. It's good to have you with us. Uh, there's uh, the yoga company uh, Bikram Hot yoga here in the lower mainland that is now without a business license as it turns out because they sent out an email to their client list claiming jason that hot yoga would be the perfect environment in which to kill the covid19 virus everyone everyone disagreed i including including you i take it (laughs) yeah Uh, i mean when you have the coronavirus like in some hot tea or something around, you know, that 40 to 45 degree temperature, yeah, it's probably going to die. But when it happens to be inside your body, regardless of how warm the outside air happens to be and whatever, you're still at around 37 degrees Celsius. It's still growing inside of you. And more importantly, it's, you know, all of a sudden getting a really good 
spurge of, of, of oxygen and all sorts of other things while you're doing that hot yoga, which means that it's getting almost all this energy to be able to continue its infection inside of you. Yeah, Dr. Bonnie Henry, the chief medical health officer here in British Columbia, says this is, in fact, a perfect environment to spread the virus, that hot yoga uh, uh, environment that you just referred to, Jason. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about it, right, we want to keep people, you know, uh, three feet, a meter apart at least, and that. But the fact is, is that's only with regular, normal breathing, right? Mm -hmm, (laughs) So mm -hmm. if you all of a sudden start including all those lovely yoga breaths, and we know them all so well, you could possibly be pushing those viruses a little bit further. And also with all that sort of nice warm air moving around, it's definitely a perfect melting pot in order for you to spread not just this virus, of course, but pretty much any kind of respiratory virus. Well, the upshot of this, as we mentioned moments ago, is the uh, provincial health officer, Dr. Henry, ordering all salons, spas, and personal care businesses closed in the province to help combat the spread of the virus. So, in fact, while this ridiculous claim by this one hot yoga joint, Jason, actually probably did the community a benefit because they got shut down themselves on a business level, but also it gave the health authorities the opportunity to step up and once again go, no, that is wrong, period. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I remember 20 years ago, we were putting together uh, a conceptualized document about the spread and transfer of viruses uh, in personnel services, Mm -hmm. um, tattoo parlors, aesthetics, all of these places. And the fact is that we realized that the, the, the proximity, the closeness that you have to have for any of this, these services basically makes it a perfect opportunity to be able to spread, especially when you're in that pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic stage. So this move makes perfect sense. Um, the only problem is, is, you know, someone like me, I need a haircut coming up, so I don't know what I'm going to do. Right, yeah. So, and, and that's true, because uh, somehow or another, we're going to have to work around all of this. It's a lot of bowl jobs coming up here, I think, in the, in the weeks ahead, Jason. I'm looking... I think it's perfect time for the Beatles to come back, <laughs> at least the hairstyles. That's right. So I'm looking at uh, the, the, uh, the website here, because uh, introducing uh, COVID-19, the do's and don'ts of social distancing, Jason, is something mm-hmm. you've had to say uh, about already. Let me start by throwing this at you. I think the concept of social distancing is in fact a misnomer. I think we should be concentrating on physical distancing, Jason, not disengaging socially. Well, I think in that context, you are completely correct. At, you know, when, when we talk about distancing, we're really talking about one person being distant from another person so that there's no spread. Exactly. The reason that we talk about social distancing is because I don't know about you, but if you go out and you go and have some fun or you go and have some exercise or you go and have some work or whatever it may be, you're around other people. Sure. Okay. And so the problem then becomes if you're with an individual, say, walking in the park, you can keep that distance. It's very difficult, though, when you're, say, in a shopping mall Mm -hmm. or, or in a grocery store, when you're walking and you're keeping your distance from one person, but then there's another person over there, and you're like, oh, man, how am I going to do this? And all of a sudden, you know, you look like Barry Sanders, the running back, trying to, like, get around everybody so that you keep that three-foot distance and get to, you know, what you're just trying to shop for. It's interesting. Of course, once you get to the checkout counter or the till or, in some cases, the lineups at the bank, now they've got footprints and lines so that once Mm -hmm. you get to 
the line, they actually do distance you to the appropriate amount so you don't have to think about it. Just put your foot on the line and you're fine. Yeah, and that's where the physical distancing actually comes in because it's a part of that social distancing. But I think the factor that we all really need to understand is we're so used to being in environments where we have numerous people around us, and therefore it becomes very strange for us to realize that um, we've got to do our best to maintain that distance. And if people are either incapable of doing it or they don't want to do it, then what you kind of have to do is you have to, you know, close the businesses altogether or start doing the limitations like we're seeing. So you can only have, you know, 50 people in any given environment. Right. Uh, and, and what that does is it essentially gives you that opportunity to have that distance from people. Uh, for me, you know, this week I went off hours to go do the shopping very easy to maintain that physical distance, and I still got all my shopping done. Right. But if I was to go, say, at 8 o'clock in the morning to a Costco, well, I don't know if I'd be able to do that unless I had somebody literally preventing me from getting in. And while I'm waiting, you know, not crowding up and trying to see what the sales are, but giving myself that distance. Interesting. I, I drove by a Costco just before 9 o'clock and opening uh, in, uh, in, in Newton, in Surrey here, uh, a few days ago. And the lineup, uh, before the doors were even open, Jason, was literally around the Blinken building. Yeah, and, and we're going to see sort of a lot more of that. And, and I think the reason is that there's still sort of that... Um, uh, panic that we're not going to be able to get the supplies that we need to be able to survive for two weeks, whatever it may be. Um, I don't think that really is the case. Uh, you know, we're hearing from the suppliers that there is enough for everybody. And, uh, you know, we, I don't think we're at the point yet where we're like in the UK where they actually are losing out on supplies because of hoarding. And we're literally seeing pleas from the uh, uh, government as well as people who are working on the front lines to just don't hoard. Thankfully, I don't think we're going to get there. But it's still very wise for people to understand that while you're sort of waiting to get into that store, um, you know, just buy what you need. Right. Right, exactly. And there's another aspect to all of this, and we saw it for the first time, Jason, just a day or so ago in the province of Quebec, where a woman who had been ordered to be quarantined decided to go out for a walk, which doctors and, and health experts, including probably you, would recommend that in these trying times, a bit of fresh air is not a bad thing, mm -hmm. unless you've been ordered quarantined. This woman was apprehended by the Montreal police and fined a couple of thousand bucks. Are we going to see more of that? Uh, yeah. Um, the, the thing is, is that we have a, a quarantine act. Um, and if you look back in history, uh, this has been part of the way of being able to control, uh, out, you know, outbreaks. Uh, most, I guess, famously for people like myself was cholera, where you literally had to point out anybody who looked sick because they would get arrested and thrown into uh, some kind of jail or they would be put into house arrest. So this is not new. Mm -hmm. It's just we're at a point now where, um, you know, with the World Health Organization saying that social distancing isn't enough, lockdowns are not enough. Well, we're going to start seeing governments maybe going a little bit uh, more towards that cholera extreme that we've seen. Um, is it totally worth it? It all depends. If we can continue to make sure that, you know, less people are getting less uh, or infected over time, then it definitely is working. But, you know, if, if we have all of this in place and we start to see spikes, 
then it just simply means that it's, a, it's, it's more of a, a community revolt against social distancing, which is much, more, which is much harder to control. Absolutely. A final question to you, Jason. It's great to have you on the show this morning, by the way. We appreciate Thank your you. time. In China, uh, in the Wuhan area where the, uh, the, the uh, outbreak is said to have originated, mm-hmm. they are now reporting a significant decline in new cases. So uh, this appears to be peaked in that area, not permanently. We don't know that yet. But in terms of the maximum effect, in terms of numbers of deaths and and, uh, casualties, uh, Mm -hmm. it appears to be subsiding. So that appears to be a 90-day cycle, roughly, from this distance. Is that encouraging news for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, we all knew that this was going to happen. We all knew that there was going to be a point at which we start to see a decline in the severity of cases and also the deaths. The big issue is really... Why did this happen in the first place? Sure, sure. And it happened to be January 18th, where they had the Wuhan Festival, 40,000 families from all over the, the world, really, all gathering in one spot to taste the Wuhan soup. And the problem with that is up until that point, none of us knew that this thing spread human to human like the common cold. So we all thought, okay, well, this will be sort of a bellwether as to uh, how you know damaging this could be. And then we found that out, and that's when they had to go into lockdown four yeah. days later. 50 so, million people, too. I know. And so the thing is, is that we are much more aware of, what, of how this happened and what had happened. So that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so much of the shutdowns and the lockdowns and all of this type of thing, because we don't want another Wuhan festival to happen. Okay, But the fact is that if... You know, even if we had a Wuhan festival happening, yes, there would be some sort of turn at the end. The only question then becomes is what cost to, you know, uh, to human life, to the economy, all of these types of things. And as a result of that, we're we're taking a much more um, gentle approach when it comes to the cases so that we can keep everything moving slowly. Um, it's, It's a hardship for all of us. And I totally understand that people may want to revolt against this, and I'm expecting that's probably going to happen starting around Wednesday. But if we stick with it, we're going to start to see those drops as well. I think so, too. Jason, I was, that was supposed to be my last question, but I have a, a sneaky last one, really. Where do, where, where, where do our listeners go to check out the Super Awesome Science Show? We are on all podcast platforms, so it doesn't matter if it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, all you have to do is type in Super Awesome Science Show. We've won Best Canadian Podcast Award two years in a row. You will have fun. You will cry probably maybe one or twice, but you're going to enjoy it and you're going to learn a few things too. Jason Tetro, the germ guy. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Enjoy the show very much, too, by the way. Oh, it was a pleasure. Take care. I'm Sterling Fox, in for Jill Bennett on a Sunday morning, joined on the line by Cynthia Bolter. Ms. Bolter is the COO of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, who earlier this week uh, issued an urgent call for financial donations, grocery bags, and volunteers. Cynthia, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, on St. Patrick's Day, this past Tuesday, you issued uh, um, this call for those three items. In that order, let's talk about it. Financial donations, grocery bags, and volunteers. But before we begin that list, Cynthia, talk to us a little bit, because it's on the website, about the measures you're taking at the food banks physically in the, the face of the COVID-19 crisis. Yeah, a lot has changed uh, for us, obviously, with uh, our locations. We have 13 locations across the uh, city, well, across the four cities that we support. 
which are Vancouver, Burnaby, New West, mm-hmm. and the North Shore. And um, we have kind of a, a shopping model where people can come in and select uh, the amount of food they're allotted according to family size in each of these locations that pop up during the week. So we have changed all of that to a pre-bagged grocery model. Okay. Uh, and that requires huge labor at our end in the warehouse. Um, but we have been able to pull that off so far. And uh, that means that people come in, they check in. Uh, we know uh, when they check in how many groceries they need according to their family size. They get the bag and they go. So it really reduces contact. Right. We've changed the way our warehouse is laid out in terms of, uh, well, we haven't had to pack these bags before, but our food sort area, we've really had to spread that out. Uh, in terms of social distancing. And then we have also reduced the number of people in our warehouse. We would previously have groups of 20 to 25 at a time in sorting and uh, preparing food uh, in terms of allotments. Uh, We're down to 10 to 15, probably 10 this week, just to make sure that there is enough space in between people. And then, of course, increased sanitation of surfaces, of all common areas, uh, hand washing, that kind of thing. Uh, Another problem or another situation that you're confronted with, Cynthia, as you seek to reorganize the way you do business is that a lot of your suppliers are also uh, working under reduced circumstances. How directly has that affected the supply of food to the banks? Well, I think that's individual uh, to the specific food bank. We've certainly seen our partner food banks hit pretty hard, the ones who depend on uh, grocery stores, for mm-hmm. example, and a lot of perishable food recovery. We've had them coming to us uh, because they are out of perishable food, for example, or out of certain items. We are the largest food bank in BC, and so we have some pretty fantastic uh Supplier relationships, um, and while we do take donations from the the grocery chains and do some purchasing from them, we also uh, go direct to suppliers. Uh So, so far, uh, that has not affected us personally, but we are supporting food banks uh, that it has affected. Right. Let's talk about that list that you put out on Tuesday about uh, the urgent call for, A, financial donations. Let's start there, the most obvious. Yeah, we we always ask for money first, uh, just because of kind of what we were just talking about, our supplier relationship. Mm -hmm. Because we buy in bulk, depending on the season, we can turn a dollar into anywhere from $2 to $8 or $10. If we're buying potatoes or onions, those are power, or apples in the summer, our buying power is the largest. Uh, And then when it gets down to, say, our most frequently purchased items, unfortunately, uh, that our buying power is the weakest, but we need those, those represent about 40% of what we buy, and that's milk and eggs and baby food. So that is why we um, we do ask for financial Cash donations is over best. food. Right. It is. Okay. Now, grocery bags, of all things, with the middle item on your three-item list, where, where does mm-hmm. that fit in? What, you, you're just running out, or people are, are expected to bring their own when they come to the bank? What's the story? Exactly. Most of the time, uh, we ask people to bring their own grocery bags, sure. and then they pack the food into it themselves. But because our model has changed... We are pre-bagging the food. Oh. We don't have that many grocery bags on hand. So I'm, uh, we received 30,000 grocery bags from Walmart last week, which is amazing. And I'm just coordinating with uh, Sobeys and Safeway, as well as uh, Save On Foods. We had another donation uh, of grocery bags last week. So uh, that's why we need them. All right. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, Cynthia Bolter, volunteers. Yes. Yeah. So we've had some volunteers drop off. 
uh, understandably. Of course. But we've also had an amazing influx of people who want to help. It's just a matter of with their schedules uh, and their locations, can they? But honestly, at this point in the warehouse, we're doing well uh, with the number of volunteers we have. That's where we really need people. Our warehouse in Burnaby, uh, down by the Costco, just off Brighton on Winston Street. Okay, sure. And uh, we need people to uh, sign up on our website through the volunteer options and uh, come in and help us sort the food and pack the bags. The website, friends, by the way, if you're interested in volunteering, and they sure would appreciate it, foodbank.bc.ca. And I'm, I haven't got to that page yet, Cynthia, but I'm assuming there's a, a volunteer, fill out this, fo- this form and email it to us kind of page. There is, exactly, yes. There's a special section for volunteers on our website. Okay. Uh, so uh, any particular specifics about volunteering that uh, in, a, in a few seconds we have remaining that uh, would help? Just people who are comfortable doing a bit of physical labor. There's no heavy lifting involved. Okay. But um, we're going to give you gloves and we're going to give you some instructions and you'll be there for, say, two to three hours at a time. Uh, and your sense of satisfaction and community giving will be considerably amped up by the time you leave. Absolutely. Cynthia Bolter, I hope you get lots more volunteers as a result of your appearance with us this morning. We're grateful for that. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We are delighted right now to welcome to the program the uh, president of the Burnaby Business Improvement Association. Paul Holden is on the line. Mr. Holden, good morning. Hi, good morning. How are you? And it's the Burnaby Board of Trade. I know, uh, I, I know, Paul. I'm sorry. I, I, I know it is. I just I flipped the wrong page. That's okay. Don't worry. Thank you for being a good sport, Paul. We were going to have you on a few minutes ago, and you got bumped by the Prime Minister. And I guess if you have to get bumped by anybody, it might as well be the boss, huh? Well, exactly. Exactly. I can't complain too much about that. Well, it's good to have you with us. We appreciate your flexibility this morning. And uh, you had uh, an interesting uh, article in the Burnaby Now paper a couple of days ago, basically reassuring uh, people in the Burnaby area that the Board of Trade is, in fact, uh, open for business and uh, probably never been more open for business, in fact, is a quote attributed to you. Tell us more, Paul, please. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting times for all of us, and this has all happened uh, obviously very quickly and has had uh, some dramatic effects on, on businesses, not, obviously not just in Burnaby, but, but everywhere. And, and, and from our point of view, as the local Board of Trade or Chamber of Commerce for, for the city, um, as I say, we've, we've taken the measures of, of, of pretty much entirely closing the office and everyone's working from home, but the staff are just absolutely dedicated to, to being there for business. And, and I would encourage every business owner, business manager that's out there to get in touch with and reach out to your local Board of Trade or Chamber of Commerce, because right now we're collating all of the resources um, that are there to help businesses uh, access the various supports that government are putting in place. We're there to still connect businesses with each other as and when that's appropriate and, and possible. And, and more than anything, we're just there to talk to businesses. We're there to hear what they're going through. We're, we're there to, to see what we can do to help in these times. We, we, we know there's, there are limits to what we can do, but, if, but, but at the very, very least, we're there to, 
to talk to our members, to listen to their concerns and to all businesses, in truth, to, to, to see what we can do for them. Paul, the Prime Minister just referred to the recall of the House of Commons this coming Tuesday to pass emergency legislation, which will allow the government to release these uh, financial commitments that they've been talking about. Uh, how concerned are you about the speed at which these remedies, uh, however brief and however temporary, will be made available? Particularly, I'm thinking again of so many of those small small businesses, some of whom are just hanging on by the, the thinnest of margins. Well, and, and, and you're dead right there. And some of them are, are, are getting to the point where they really can't hang on uh, much longer at all or, or any longer at all. And, yeah. and, and I think, you know, that there are, there are some of the measures, you know, we, we, we're just anxious and we're talking to, I had a, a, a good conversation with our local um, MP in Burnaby, Terry Beach, yesterday, and we were talking about the need to try to get these um, these measures uh, and supports into the hands of, of business and their employees as, as soon as possible. You know, we were hearing all the time that businesses, business owners are, 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 are just having the most awful time coming to terms with how they can pay uh, their staff. And sure. if they can't pay their staff, what measures they can put in place, how they can meet the rent payments and, and what's out there for, the, for themselves as well. Because if they don't qualify for EI, then there are other things that need to happen. So we are concerned with, with the timing. We understand that this, this has been an extraordinary time and that, um, that, that no matter how much resource you throw at these, uh, getting these, these supports into the hands of businesses and their employees, it's going to take longer than you would like. But we're, we're doing everything we can to encourage the government at all levels to, to get these supports out there as quickly as possible. But we are a little worried um, that, that, you, that in terms of the speed, it may not be quick enough. And, and particularly in the area of the, the wage subsidy, where, yeah. where currently 10% is being offered for businesses. I mean, if, you, if you're experiencing a 70 or 80% loss in revenue, 10% is helpful, but it's not necessarily going to solve uh, the, the bulk of the problems. So again, that was something I mentioned to our MP yesterday, and it's something that we're encouraging government to look at. We're hearing from governments around the world that are north of 50% in terms of, of, of helping uh, wage subsidies, and we're doing everything we can to encourage uh, the government to look at heading in that direction. We're speaking with uh, CEO Paul Holden from the Burnaby Board of Trade. Uh, and uh, as, at this time uh, of crisis, uh, the Board of Trade is actually quite a valuable resource, Paul. I wonder uh, how you can describe what you're doing uh, because you are, are an intersection. You provide an opportunity for business leaders and employees and uh, consumers all alike to come together and share experiences and uh, talk to us about the sorts of resources that you have at your disposal to provide to people. Well, exactly. Exactly. We're um, uh, every city, just so that that, that all the listeners are aware, every city has a board of trade or a chamber of commerce. and, and, And obviously we're the one for the city of Burnaby, but I know my colleagues across all the uh, communities uh, are doing everything that they can in the same way that we are. But, but from our point of view, you know, it's our role to um, to see what we can do to be there to to encourage businesses as much as they can, uh, and the communities at large around the businesses to still do as much as they can to support their local business. Um, you know, everyone has different business models, but the local businesses are just not geared up for this long term. Uh, break in, in in revenue streams and, and break in doing business. So wherever you can, we're encouraging business to do uh, everything they can to support each other and the community at large as well. Yeah, we're, we're a big believer that the health of the community and the health of the business community are very much intertwined. And this is a time for us all, all to pull together. And we, we have resources both online and through our staff to connect 
those businesses and the communities to, to make sure they're they're supporting each other. We're in daily calls with the federal government to make sure we're on top of of every support that's out there for mm-hmm. business and for their employees, and we're sharing that with with all businesses in in the community as as much as we can. And as I said at the beginning. I'd encourage every uh, uh, business owner or business leader to reach out to their local board of trade or chamber of commerce and, and, and see what resources are there and see what you can do to help. Uh, we're, we're doing some things, for example, that are a bit different. People know us for events and, and putting on um, events on a regular basis, and right. we're not able to do that right now. But next week, we're putting on a virtual networking event where we're inviting businesses to come together through a, 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 a video conference platform. And, and just be there for each other to connect, to share their own story, to share what they might be able to do to support and help each other. Um, and, and so things like that, I think, uh, 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 go some way towards um, to, to, towards helping people through these times. That's a smart idea, Paul, the, uh, the notion of a video conference. And I'll bet you already with that announcement, uh, you're probably receiving a fair degree of feedback from people who go, well, I don't want to go anywhere to a meeting, but I'll be delighted to join your video conference and see what other people are doing. As I understand it, Paul, the three burning questions that appear most frequently at uh, the Burnaby Board of Trade uh, are, how can I pay my employees? How do I pay my rent? And how do I pay myself or keep myself afloat? That's right. And, and as we touched on just now, the how can I pay, pay, pay my employees has been addressed to a point sure. by the wage subsidy program and also by the changes to the work share program. Um, but more needs to be done. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just we're, we're hearing stories um, uh, on, a, on a daily basis and, and multiple times per day of businesses that are looking into um, uh, either potentially reducing their staff uh, levels on a, on a hopefully temporary level. Uh, some it's looking like it's more permanent. Um, we're, and, and the work sharing program is one that people would like to, to take advantage of. But again, as, as you mentioned earlier, some of these, the wait times are, are a little bit too long and, and people can't do them right away. We understand that the wage subsidy program you can access uh, immediately right. um, through, through payroll, uh, through payroll processing. And so we encourage businesses to explore that. Um, on, on the rent side of it, you know, we're, we we know that there's some mortgage um, uh, assistance that's that's been that's been coming out. But again, on the on the rent side of it, we're looking to see whatever uh, could, can be done to to help um, to help businesses defer some of those payments. Mm-hmm. And we were just talking to to the mayor the other day, and and also to our provincial representatives about what can be done in the area of property tax because that's lurking just around the corner. And for a lot of businesses, that's a pretty hefty payment that they're facing. So we're doing whatever we can to encourage uh, the various levels of government that can influence that to to see what we can do about deferring those payments. Some of the measures that the federal government has been taking and the Prime Minister of Canada about 20 minutes ago announced to the country that the, uh, the Parliament will be recalled this coming Tuesday in order to pass the emergency legislation that will release funds from the government of Canada. So we know that's coming. However limited those funds may be, Paul, and you pointed to the fact that other countries are, are subsidizing wages to the point of 50%, the government of Canada talking about 10 But I'd like to move to Victoria for a few moments with you, sir. You've been talking to the mayor of Burnaby, but you've been talking to your local MLAs as well. And we've heard from the provincial government over the past few days uh, that, for example, they're, they're contemplating an eviction ban, as the province of Ontario has already initiated. And you're talking about property taxes moments ago. Is Victoria the source for changing or moving property tax adjustments back or is that strictly a municipal issue 
Well, it's a bit of both, to be honest, but, but it can't really happen without the provincial government um, in, initiating some form of, of direction and, and change on this. Um, you know, for some while we've been hearing from our members and, and um, I know it's been covered on, on various radio shows as well about the, uh, the burden on business through the way that the uh, property assessment process works. Mm-hmm. So um, we've been advocating for change on that. And, and uh, you know, so some of these bills that businesses are, are, are facing are absolutely huge. And, and um, if they were to come through right now, we just don't know what would happen to, to those businesses on top of everything else that's going on. So we would really hope uh, very, very strongly that the provincial government will realise, um, and I know they do, the severity of the situation right now and do whatever they can, whether it's deferring the payments or or working with municipalities on some form of a program to to defer those payments because obviously the municipalities rely on those funds um, to to maintain their operations. Sure. So there needs to be cooperation between the two levels of government um, and we really hope that the provincial government will will initiate those conversations and, and that process uh, and that our businesses can um, can expect that, that perhaps they won't be getting um, the, the, the sometimes huge property tax bill in, in the next couple of months. What, what Where's the advantage, Paul? I mean, if the government doesn't act to discourage those sorts of things going forward, some businesses, as you just said, are simply not going to cut it. They're going to go under. So what advantage is it to any level of government to have a business go out of business? Uh, Government revenues are going to be just really poor over the next uh, few months, uh, to say nothing of perhaps even a year or more. So the more you eliminate any potential for revenue, the more harm you're doing to yourself ultimately at the end of the day. So one would hope that Victoria would see the advantage to um, delaying or um, pushing this whole uh, implementation of property tax increases back a considerable amount. How hopeful are you that that could happen? Um, I'm pretty hopeful. Uh, I mean, I think, as as you say, it it would appear to be a bit of a challenging thought to get your head around that they wouldn't look at doing this. And, and, you know, to your point about businesses, that this could send some businesses under. Mm -hmm. In truth, we were hearing even before the impacts of the virus that some of the property tax amounts that people were expecting to be billed could, even at those times, have put them out of business. So that was before all this happened. Um, So now it would be even more devastating. So um, we, we would very, very much hope that in the next day or so we're going to be hearing something um, of, of a positive nature with regards to the deferment of those payments. Can you tell us a little bit about the work share program? I note that in the, the, the paper article in the Burnaby Now that uh, featured you and uh, so on, you talked a little bit about the work share program. Can you expand on, on what you were saying? Because all I know is that it's expanded uh, access to the, uh, the work share program has been expanded from 30, 38 weeks rather to 76 weeks as part of the, the federal stimulus package. Can you tell us more? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the challenges with the workshare program is just um, uh, the sheer volume of, of, of applications that are coming in and, and just how long it's going to be taking for, for those programs to be, um, to, to be up and running. Sure. And, and, and in, in one of the conversations I, I had with the federal government during the week, um, they are doing everything they can to reduce those, those wait times. It's currently close to a month, and they, they know they have to get that, uh, that time down. But it does give organizations the opportunity if they get agreement from uh, from the employees and from uh from from, from obviously from from uh, the, the government and and uh, the, uh, they themselves as an organization uh, have the desire to do it they they have the way that they have the, method, the, the the means of sharing um, the work and 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 obviously it, the, a lot of the eligibility relies on um, ei uh, eligibility but 
and they have that ability to bring that that in and uh, you, you know reduce their costs accordingly. So uh, it's a program that we're hearing a lot of our members and businesses are, are interested in exploring. It's taking a little bit of a while. Um, I think for people to get access to it, but I think those wait times are coming down. But you're right; it's, it's um, the eligibility has, has increased from 38 to 76 weeks, and, and obviously we hope that, that things will be improving way before that time. But I think it's good that, that at least we have that horizon. Exactly, and of course now with the Tuesday recall of Parliament and the passage of uh, uh, emergency legislation, which the opposition parties are already completely on side with doing, there won't be much debate. Uh, it's a matter of uh, pro forma vote and passed and let's get it done. One would expect that the feds will really hit the gas pedal as, as hard as they can once it's, uh, it becomes law and they have the capacity to start distributing funds, don't you? Well, I would expect so. And, and um, I, I know that's their intention. I know, again, talking to our MP yesterday, um, they're, they're doing everything they can to get these in the hands of, uh, of businesses and their employees as quickly as possible. But, you know, it, it's interesting. You know, just last week, um, the uh, I think in, in, in the space of, of a couple of days last week, they had half a million EIS yes, that's um, right. coming in. And, and you can you can uh, you know you, you can appreciate just the the burden that that places on 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 a, on a, on a workload and, and and with all the best intentions and the best wills and the increasing of resources it takes a little while to to work through that uh, that, that increased load but I know that the will is there um, certainly uh, all sides of the opposition um, groups and what have you are all pulling together on this and making sure that we can uh, do whatever we can to get through this. As, uh, as 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 uh, in as healthy state as possible. Paul, you talked earlier about a video uh, conference coming up soon, sponsored by the Burnaby Board of Trade. Uh, does one have to register for that? And if one wants to participate, is there is there a website that you can direct our listeners to for the date and time and all of that stuff? Or is that still to be worked out? A little bit still to be worked out, but we're going to be sending something out tomorrow. Um, is, is the plan to to get people on board? You know, we have an event at the end of every month, which is one of our most popular events, and it's a breakfast networking one. And and you know, obviously, we can't do those in person sure. anymore, but we'll, we want to make sure people can connect. And I know that other boards of trade and chambers um, around the province are looking to do similar things. But ours, um, in addition to the town halls that we're doing during the week, where, which are just phone uh, conference calls. Uh, we're looking forward to getting this one off the ground. There will be, it'll probably be done through something like Zoom and people can just register. Uh, they'll get the link and then hopefully we can, um, the, the screen looks a little bit like the Brady Bunch screen when you've got everybody's pictures on there, but um, it's great. It's, it's a great way to connect and uh, it, it's a great way to keep people um, connected. And just one point on that, you know, you can only imagine right now if you're uh, owning or managing a small business and you have all of these worries going on in your mind, it's, it, it's, it, it doesn't take too much for you to feel quite isolated and, and on your own. And, no question and about really, it. Really, really struggling on this. And, we'll look forward and to that announcement tomorrow then, Paul, and, and uh, all of our CKNW hosts will be happy to pass along the specifics of the conference coming up. Thank you for your time this morning, sir. We appreciate your, shall we say, flexibility in joining us on, on CKNW. That's okay. Thanks very much. Playing some basketball music in the background on account of, well, we don't have any basketball to play. Although there is a league here in Canada called the Canadian Elite Basketball League with teams in uh, Saskatoon, Hamilton, Ottawa, Edmonton, Guelph, Niagara, and the Fraser Valley saying we're going to start up. Uh, on May 7th. Okay, let me rephrase. We're hoping to start up on May 7th. Here to talk about the distinct 
absence of sports during this COVID-19 crisis is Professor Laurel Walzak from the RTA School of Media in Toronto at Ryerson University. Professor Walzak, Laurel, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you because, my gosh, there's no... I actually sat down last night with my son and we watched moments. I didn't last too long, but it was kind of cool, of the 1980 All-Star Game featuring Gordy Howe and Wayne Gretzky and a list of names that I hadn't heard in a very long time. That's what it's come to on a Saturday night, the 1980 All-Star Game. (laughs) Yes, you know, the power of retro marketing, and it's actually a real thing, but I think right now as you're seeing people having to rely on the benefits of um, that nostalgia and throwback right now, and and that's the reality that we're living in. Sure. And, and of course, uh, you, you, you kind of, I feel, uh, frankly, for some of my colleagues at the Sports Network, like uh, TSN and Sportsnet and those other uh, ESPN, uh, these people have nothing to report. So now they're relying on the retro material. I know they're doing the, the rebroadcast mm-hmm. of the entire Toronto Raptors play, uh, playoff run last year. And that'll, of course, have basketball fans happy a little bit. But let's talk, first of all, not about the big league stuff where the millionaires play laurel let's talk about the smaller sports league beginning with the ones in which nobody ever gets paid the beer leagues the 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 co-ed softball leagues the the corner stuff the neighborhood stuff all gone yes this is um what we're seeing obviously with COVID 19 it's and and having to physically distance ourselves and not have large groups is negatively impacting sports at all levels sure. and it's it's very sad to see i mean it's necessary that people are distancing themselves um however i think uh you know what's happening is something that we have never experienced before it's very uncomfortable people are stressed out about it and when sports brings people together i mean right down to um nelson mandela saying sport unites uh, physically and socially and mentally right now it's unfortunately not physically so i think you know we're gonna have to rely on other ways that we're able to unite uh and join together as a community and i and i see it's negatively impacting these smaller groups and financially you're right they're not millionaires they're um you know they're leagues that we're going to see uh, go into bankruptcy. There are leagues that we're going to see negatively financially impacted, and it's going to devastate. And I'm, it's it's very concerning. Yeah, and you you wonder, for, especially for example, recently the push that's been put on, and quite a quite a focused push it has been too, Laurel, by the women uh, of of hockey, uh, and uh, the, this year participating for the second year in a row at the NHL All Star Game, and really pushing hard to have a women's professional hockey league become established in North America, and of course any hope of that happening in the in the near future is completely evaporated. But beyond that. That, as you said moments ago, some sports leagues are in trouble. You think of, for example, the ECHL and, you know, single A baseball like we have here in Vancouver with the Canadians. Now, they're part of the Blue Jays organization, so I guess they're in line for some kind of possible subsidy, but they also rely on fans, the gate, sponsors, and all of those other things. And with no season ahead, what's uh, what's it looking like? I, I guess if you're affiliated with a a professional franchise, your prospects are a little better than if you're just operating all on your own. Uh, yes, of course. The, I mean, the, the main thing is the sources of revenues in sports and everything from 
ticket sales to TV rights to content to merchandise sales and sponsorship. These, all of these are negatively impacted. And uh, for, I know for the the short term, at least, uh, you're, you know, we're going to see the major leagues figuring out a way to subsidize. Absolutely. However, in, we don't know how long this is going to last. Right. Seeing relief funds pop up. And uh, to, to be able to, to help out, I'm seeing some amazing movements from some of the players and the owners saying, hey, listen, we're actually going to donate. We're going to you know, be paying for people currently right now. That said, there is, I would say, um, a life, uh, a shelf life to that. Right. Um, you know, how that impacts everybody in the long term is going to be the big, the big question. You know, restaurants and bars, I mean, I'm thinking even of sponsors, um, that that are negatively impacted by this and not being able to sell their products or mm-hmm. merchandise selling their products. And it's, it's everybody is impacted, not just the organizations. But we are going to see specifically in Canada these types of leagues, smaller leagues, that were always just holding on um, by a thread, yeah. you know, with minimal ticket sales and uh, minimum, minimal audiences. They're, they're definitely going to struggle in this time and... Um, may need to see what kind of alternatives that they need to take. Well, of course, and the other thing, too, is kids sports. Now, a lot of kids sports, you just pay your, your admission fees and uh, you, you don't have any uh, any uh, financial commitments beyond that. But when I was a little kid playing hockey in Toronto, um, we had uh, my, the team I played on for several years was sponsored by a restaurant. So, you know, and they we had their ad thing on our on our the back of our sweaters and our name bars, but they got their plug and and we were happy to give it to them, but that's that's all gone. So, in any kind of sponsor relationship, whether it's amateur or or child leagues or whatever, that that all of those potential funding sources are completely gone. Well, I think they're I'm not sure if they're completely gone yet. I think the bigger question for for this the, the grassroots level are little kids being able to still get physically active well, and get sure. out where they're normally, you know, we've got soccer season coming up and baseball and t-ball season coming up and they're not able to get out and be with their friends and, um, and be out playing as, as a group. They're not even able to go to school. So this is going to be the big challenge as well to keep kids um, physically active, uh, not not to mention the fact that they don't that, that funding is definitely going to to impact um, sport organization and grassroots sport organizations. And I think this is where um, you know philanthropic initiatives are going to need to come into place for sure. Um, but I do also think that right now that the, the priority is to get our Canadians safe and to get the world safe sure. from a health standpoint. I do feel for parents and I do feel for teams that, that these children um, and these young kids cannot get outside necessarily and play. And some are constrained. They may, they may live in an apartment building versus having a big backyard that they can kick around the soccer ball. Sure. Um, this is, it's very sad. And, uh, you know, hopefully I know the government as an example, is even with education trying to get uh, television programming, um, but I also see a role for, as you called them, the millionaires, but I see a role for major league sports and the athletes and those that they look up to, um, to let them know that they're not alone and they can use um, content uh, to do this. And they can use digital media content to reach the fans and reach the kids and continue to, to keep them as 
high-spirited as possible in this difficult time. And Laurel, just before we talk about the responsibility that some of these millionaire stars have and their generosity as well, two things occurred to me during the break. Uh, talking about feeling some some of the pain from my com- colleagues in the sports uh, broadcasting business, thank God for the NFL. If it hadn't been for Tom Brady this week, they really would have had absolutely nothing to talk about. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about is the Olympics. Now, we've heard from several Canadian athletes, Haley Wickenheiser uh, and many others, uh, really frowning at the International Olympic Committee uh, and their their determination to go forward with the Olympics in Tokyo at, towards the end of July and into early August. Uh, Wickenheiser, for example, saying it's incredibly irresponsible. Some of the U.S. teams are now saying, look, we're, we're sequestered. We can't, we can't go outside. We can't, the rowing team can't jump in the, in the, the war canoes and, and, and do that stuff. So we're, we're not going to have proper uh, pre-Olympic training regiments in place. So what do you make of the, the determination on the part of the IOC? Yeah, well, the IOC, for sure, I mean, they're, they're adamant right now that they're moving forward, but they're also being very tight-lipped. I, I agree with Haley Wickenheiser that I think that it's irresponsible. I think that, um, you know, the reality of our situation is not just impacting the Olympics and all of these athletes, but it's impacting everybody in sport. You know, the entire sport ecosystem right now is being challenged. You know, facilities are closed. Yeah. In, teams can't practice together. Uh, you know, they're being ordered by governments not to practice together. They can't travel at this point. I mean, even getting to Japan is next to impossible at this point mm-hmm. um, and a very high risk. So I think they're holding on, but I, it's more complex than that. And it, I would imagine what they're doing is they're trying to um, put things in order for when they do when they do postpone or they do cancel or suspend it. I, I think that is what's going on right now versus them just thinking that they're going to be moving ahead with it. Yeah, and, and of um, course, it didn't help either when the one of the vice presidents of the IOC, and if I'm not mistaken, Laurel, the gentleman was Japanese, has been uh, diagnosed with COVID-19. Yes, exactly. So, you know, they're not immune. Um, and the, I, I was actually quite disappointed to see that the, the lighting of the torch occurred and you could see people gathering together. Um, and I get what they're trying to do in terms of moving things forward, yeah. but uh, I just think that it, the reality is that this likely is not going to happen. I've seen a lot of people say that it's too too early, um, or it's like make the call right now. But it's just, uh, in, I think it's inevitable. Uh, I know we're talking about July, but there's not a lot that people can be doing in this time period. And even if they get creative, it's just not the same type of training that they could be doing if we weren't going to the current situation that we're going through right now. Sure. They're just nobody's going to arrive in absolutely peak form because they haven't had an opportunity, especially in any of the team events. Let's talk a little bit about those those athletes who are sidelined, perhaps with the least degree of difficulty, the professionals in the NBA, in the NHL, in Major League Baseball, and the golfers. I mean, nobody's working. Most of these people have uh, healthy bank accounts and, and all the rest of it. They can handle it. Many of them are turning together and uniting and collecting money, passing the hat, so to speak, around the locker room and collecting significant amounts of money to help those who sell the popcorn and take the tickets and check the bags and work in their stadiums and arenas to get through this period of difficulty. And that's that's a laudable move. It is. And I think it, I hope to see more of this. The, 
the reputation and sort of this cause-related, mark, um, I was going to say marketing, it gives them an opportunity to market, but this is genuine. This is coming from the athletes and the owners as, as genuine. They yeah. haven't started to use this as marketing, but I could see that they could do that in the future. But the impact that it's going to have on their employees and is going to go a very long way for when we do get through all this and we go back to normalcy. I think those that uh, you know are going to appreciate it and remain even more loyal um, whether they're loyal to their team or to the athletes. This is something where community comes together, sport comes together, and um, it's it's a lot of what they can be doing. You know, um, they don't necessarily have to do this, but the fact that they are and they're giving back to those that have helped them get to where they are is key. Sure. Uh, final question to you, Professor Walzak, and we're delighted to have you with us this morning. We've only got a minute. Uh, I just wanted to know what you were, what you make of the fact that even if you're not a sports fan, it's absolutely impossible not to notice the impact sports have has rather on the lives of Canadians. Absolutely. The sport is something that unites. It's something that... Uh, brings happiness, brings people together. Uh, it provides an element of escapism and entertainment, and uh, this is negatively impacting that. However, I don't think we should look at this so negatively in terms of we still have an opportunity to come together through digital support one another, sure. uh, talk about sports, and that's also going to help keep our spirits up, and I strongly recommend that during this difficult time. Thanks very much for this, Laura Walczak. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. We appreciate your time on the weekend, particularly. Thank you.